Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. You know, it never ceases to amaze me the number of ways that we as humans, professionals, are able to carve out careers and lives for ourselves. And in this episode today, I've got this really, really great guest. Her name is Rebecca Wilson Lai, and she is a leading sake professional. You know, one of the biggest and most brightest minds on the matter within Japan, and my bet would be globally, especially after listening to this talk. I'm sure you're going to be feeling the same way. But her talk represents a few different things for me. You know, one of them is what just the world that she's within. You know, and the, the profession that she's. Attached herself to is really really interesting, and we're going to learn all about it in terms of sake, how it's produced, you know, the ins and outs of the industry, some of the challenges, some of the rewards of it all. We're going to hear all of that stuff. But then on the other hand, we're also going to be treated to, you know, how an individual can take their intense passion for something and make it into a career. You know, what are the lessons learned along the way? So. Maybe you yourself aren't into sake, and that's okay. But you have something else, and you just don't know how you want to take it further, how you can take it further. Well, there's a lot of lessons imbued within this conversation that are gonna give you some insights on all of that. So, with that stated, I mean, why don't we get started? Let's get into this. Rebecca Wilson Lai is a SEC certified advanced sake professional, WSET level three educator, and has been an international wine challenge sake division judge since 2016. Further, she is the head of international PR, marketing, and sake exports for Japan Craft Sake Company, a company headed by Hideyotoshi Nakata, an iconic Japanese ex-footballer and public figure within Japan. Rebecca herself regularly appears in Japanese TV shows, magazines, and other media. She's also one of the three main subjects of the documentary movie *Kampai Sake Sisters*, which was released internationally in 
And to add, Rebecca is also one of the key drivers and organizers for Japan's largest sake culture event, Craft Sake Week. Accordingly, Rebecca has established herself as a trusted source of consultancy knowledge for sake breweries, corporations, and the world's leading restaurants, brand and product development, sake education, and developing a traceable minus 5 degrees Celsius sake export system for the global market. Now, a lot has changed for Rebecca since 2005 when she first made her way to Japan from New Zealand. Her first encounter with sake has clearly inspired a life-changing journey, which has evolved into a career as one of Japan's leading non-Japanese sake professionals. So with all of this noted, here's my conversation with Rebecca wilson Lai. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Rebecca? I'm great, thanks, Chris. Long time no see. Eh? Yeah, yeah. We did uh, we did have some crossover there within our time in uh, in Tokyo, at least my time in Tokyo. So it's really nice to see you again, and uh, I'm really excited to to get into what you've been up to, especially within this world of sake. And I do have this first segment lined up. It is something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's just a segment where I read off a definition relating to what the guest does, and mm-hmm. of course, I went with sake. And uh, I'm curious to see how well, you know, Wikipedia measures up here. So let me just read off this definition and then you can comment. Does that sound all right? Yeah, go. All right, here we go. So sake. Sake, also referred to as Japanese rice wine, is an alcoholic beverage of Japanese origin made by fermenting rice that has been polished to remove the brand. Despite the name, Japanese rice wine, sake, and indeed any East Asian rice wine is produced by a brewing process more akin to that of beer, where starch is converted into sugars that ferment into alcohol, whereas in wine, alcohol is produced by fermenting sugar that is naturally present in fruit, typically grapes. There it is. First take, what do you think of that? Right, well, yes and no. Okay. (laughs) To be honest, though, I mean, yes, that is fundamentally correct. I guess that like over the last two decades that I've been involved in in the sake world, the most common question I'm asked is what is sake? And if we're going to break it down, first of all, the word sake or sake as it's often mispronounced in the West is used in Japan to refer to alcoholic beverages in general, right? So that wine, beer, whiskey, whatever, including sake. Because once upon a time, there was only one sake in Japan. But after, you know, the major revolution and Japan opened its borders to the world and Western-style alcohol beverages were imported in the 19th century, things got a little bit confusing. Now there are lots of sakes, right? So in order to differentiate things, sake is officially defined as seishu or a clear, refined sake but is more commonly referred to as Nihonshu, or the traditional alcoholic beverage of Japan. Now, overseas, Nihonshu has been taken to mean Japanese rice wine. That's the direct translation, or that's how it's been mistranslated, which it's a bit of a misnomer because, as you said before, sake is made from rice, a grain, not from grapes, right? Yeah. So. Sake can't be a wine because it doesn't have immediately fermentable sugars in it, right? So sake is, and also the really other big distinction to make about sake and to really stress is that sake is brewed. It's not distilled. 
from rice, but not just rice, also corgi rice. Now, corgi rice is rice that's been propagated with a, a rice mold, water, and yeast. Nothing else. And that's actually one of the beauties of sake. Sake is very what we call clean alcohol. It does not contain any preservatives or any additives. And unlike wine, it can't be heavily fined to stabilize it, like to remove the microorganisms. It can't be heavily um, filtered. As such, sake is incredibly sensitive to heat and light and requires careful storage and handling. Otherwise, the sake will, you know, kick out of balance, um, off flavors will be produced. So in order to enjoy it in the highest quality possible, it's usually consumed within the brewing year. And it's also now, thanks to modern technology, it's almost always refrigerated for storage purposes. The Wikipedia um, answer is correct. My my gripe is with the naming. Yeah. The naming of sake. So I think that, you know, sake is kind of, it's an incredibly simple beverage that is incredibly complex at the same time. Looks like a spirit. So people I see on online and on YouTube drink it like like a tequila shot mm. <laughs> slamming it but it's right. only 15 percent alcohol so they're not getting much of a yeah, buzz yeah it looks like a spirit but it it's a ferment and it's very unstable and like a spirit it can't be stored at room temperature really it has like the aromatic diversity and complexity of a wine but in fact it behaves in terms of its, its storage and um and so forth, and the way it's brewed, in fact, in many ways, like a beer. Yeah. As I say, it's a very simple beverage. I just read off before, it only has four ingredients, but it's incredibly complex. And there, I think, a lot of the confusion about sake and, you know, brains. But, you know, that's the sort of very sort of textbook, Wikipedia version of it. But for me, sake is really more than a drink. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe you could speak to those points. I mean, culturally, yeah. what it means to you, what it means to, within the culture of Japan as well, what mm. it represents. I mean, for me, sake is, is not just an alcohol. I mean, it most definitely is, and drink responsibly, everyone. <laughs> but it's, for me, sake, I came into sake by accident. And this was not my career path at all. And I can talk about that a little bit later on. But for me, what I've discovered is that sake is really, it's like an invisible thread. It's an invisible thread that's interwoven throughout Japan's rich cultural tapestry. And sake connects us with Japan's history because it goes back to the start of Japanese civilization. You know, before sake, before rice planting arrived in Japan, before that knowledge arrived 2,000 years ago, Japan was a, was a country of pandas and gatherers. After rice cultivation was established, people started to settle and live in communities. And very soon after, sake was created and became part of the culture and tradition of those communities. So sake connects us to Japanese cultural heritage, to religion, to the seasons, to the land, to the water, to the environment, as well as, most importantly, the local people their stories, their personality, and of course, the food that they eat. Yeah, exactly. And that's really the great beauty of sake and what has made and continues to make this journey I'm on so life-enhancing is that 
with every sip, you're able to sort of travel the country and explore the diversity of a seemingly monocultural country. You can you can experience all of the regional differences around the nation and experience unique character of each brewery, each local area, and of course the raw ingredients that it's made with. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, most definitely. Like a, a couple of things that, you know, when I was listening to all this is one is I think you should be rewriting that Wikipedia definition. <laughs> I think you're you're well armed to do so. It's much clearer. People hearing that have a much better understanding, I think, of, of what, you know, not only it's made of for one and also clears up some of the misconceptions, but then also too what you're just speaking of, you know, some of the history and how it ties into the culture. And I think part of it, like for some people, perhaps is, is that it's like the attraction to it is this allure maybe people don't fully understand it to the depths of what you were just explaining there but they know that it represents more than just a drink you know it, it yeah. does tie but in i think that can also be a barrier because i think for, for non-japanese people they like i don't understand sake so i can't mm, like it but good point like when i was when i was young drinking wine for the first time I didn't know I just just dived into it and worked (laughs) out what I liked and what I didn't like and then now as an adult I know what wine I enjoy drinking that I want to drink I know what wine works with the food that I like to have and I know what wine to enjoy for an occasion I'm no expert on wine but I can quite competently order it off the menu but even people with a lot of that kind of wine experience find sake incredibly intimidating because there is this perception of I need to know all of the the cultural stuff that goes with it. Nah, Japanese people don't even know it either. And in fact, the reverse is true for Japanese people because it's always has been in Japanese culture, because it is so deeply tied to Japanese culture, young generations have completely rejected and disconnected from sake and are going with wines or spirits or something that's a little bit more aspirational or more reflective of where they are in their lives or who they want to be and identify as in in their lives and there is still this um, lingering association of sake with something that's like for the older generation something that's like you know oji-san which is like old man drink and also a lot of Japanese people's first experience of drinking sake is when they turn 21 there's this coming of age day ceremony where all young people gather together and they go to the shrine and they celebrate and then they have a group gathering afterwards usually at a really cheap azakaya and they are now legally uh, no it's 20 isn't it it's not 21 um they are legally able to drink and so they're just like all on you know and they're drinking that like you know downing massive jugs of sake in one go and it's a cheap azakaya, so it's cheap sake. And they wake up in the morning never wanting to drink sake ever, ever again. And they associate <laughs> sake with that experience. So, yeah, it's it's funny. So for Westerners, they find that incredible texture and context that surrounds sake appealing but intimidating. And Japanese people find it, it's kind of like, you you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. And so people are just like, nah, I want to do something a bit more fashionable and sophisticated, that like the person I want to be, you know. My personal experience of this has been kind of interesting because, as I said, I came to Saki not knowing anything. Not This was not on my trajectory at all. 
I arrived in Japan in 2005 from Korea. I'd come from Korea where I'd been teaching. Had you, sorry and, to interrupt, had you tried sake before actually entering the country, getting into Japan? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, All I right. did. So my dad actually loves Japanese food. And in Auckland, um, New Zealand, where I'm, I'm actually from New Zealand, Japanese food is really popular. Like it's the most popular lunch food in New Zealand, I think. Everyone has sushi. I mean, it's sushi. It's American style sushi, but whatever. My dad loved going to Japanese restaurants. And so we went to like the, would often go to his favorite Isakaya in Auckland. And that's where I tried sake for the first time. And it was kind of a dark amber, yellow color. It had been zapped in the microwave, like the the, the tokure or the, the flask that it was served in was kind of shaking because it was clearly <laughs> so hot. And I drank it and burnt the rope of my mouth. Like I can clearly remember burning the Quite rope the of my mouth. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow. Again, like most people, I guess, I was like, wow, I mean, sake is really famous. I guess I just don't understand it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that was my first experience. And so when I moved to Japan, I got I landed a job teaching English in a tiny school in the countryside of Japan, an area called Shizuoka Prefecture, which is a beautiful, beautiful prefecture. And it's where, you know, wasabi, strawberries, oranges, all the good things in, in Japan come from. It's really a cornucopia. There's a little peninsula called Izuhanto, and I live in a tiny little town in that peninsula and uh, you can see Mount Fuji from that wow, peninsula. So it was like I landed in a picture postcard of Japan. Right. <laughs> it was sounds like it, yeah. But um at my welcoming party, the the president of the company gathered you know, all the staff together and everyone was drinking. It was like one of those kind of informal barbecues in summer. And around the table everyone was drinking, you'll know this Chris, like that cheap third generation beer. You know, the one that's only hops, it's got no malt in okay. it. Okay, yeah. You know those ones? So it's yeah. super cheap beer. Yeah. yeah, And super cheap generic supermarket brand spirits and box wine. Um, in my town, there were only two wines available. There was a red one, a white one. They both came in a box and they cost, you know, basically $5 or 500 yen. And I, was, I wasn't having much fun with the booze. But then they brought out this special bottle and they poured it and they gave me a glass and like welcome to japan i was like oh what's this and they're like oh it's nihonshu and i was like what's that and they're like it's sake and i was like what's that and i go sake and i was like oh <laughs> sake okay <laughs> and i bought i remember it so vividly it was really like my eureka moment my hallelujah moment i brought the glass to my mouth and i was just immediately struck by these wonderful ethereal notes of like cantaloupe, melon, apple, banana. You remember all peach. this. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was, just, I was like, An explosion I thought this was of... made from rice. Yeah. And then I drank it and it had the most incredible, and it was crystal clear, like crystal white, the most purest crystalline water almost. And I drank it and the, the lovely fruit notes continued on the palate. But then it just kind of like melted into my palate. And there's this really refined acidity and delicate umaminess. And then it just like, it just so clean. And I was like, oh, what was that? That was amazing. I'll have another. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe this is made from rice. And they were like, 
oh yeah yeah and I said well, what is it and they're like oh it's Jizaki no I never knew it. I mean I'd been in Japan for all of a week I, I knew nothing I was like well what's that and they were like, oh it's local sake so the sake that they'd bought me was a locally produced Shizuoka sake um it's like my welcome to Japan thing and actually I mean they told me the name I didn't know what it meant it wasn't until years later they've been oh my gosh the sake that they served me is one of the most famous sakes in Japan so I kind of started at the top shelf which is pretty lucky but you know so I at that experience at that day I was you know looking around all the awful awful beverages that everyone else was drinking (laughs) I was like well if I'm gonna have fun in Japan I'm Better keep on drinking more of this. Yeah, this Nihon shoe stuff. This rocks. And so I was like, I said to the other stuff, like, oh, so I want to have some more of that sake this weekend. Like, where do I go? And they're like, going, oh, well, there's nothing really in this area. You're going to have to go to the nearest big town. And I was like, okay, well, let's go. And they're like, "Mm, we're not really into drinking sake. I was like, oh, I quickly discovered that no one Mm. wanted to. None of the women wanted to drink the sake. None of the guys were really interested in it either. But I was really yeah, amazed by, by this. Yeah. And so I was like, well, if I go to a restaurant by myself or an izakaya by myself, how do I order it again? So they like wrote down some like words mm. for me to use. And then I said, but I want to have more shizuoka sake. And they said, okay, well, then you're just going to have to ask them for the shizuoka sake. And I was like, oh, okay. It was getting a bit difficult. Yeah, it sounds And like they it. said, okay, here's a trick. Just memorize the Chinese characters for Shizuoka Prefecture. So if you, they hand you the menu, just point to the one that says Shizuoka. So to make sure I didn't make a mistake, I memorized all of the prefectures <laughs> of Japan, nice. all of their kanji. And I bought a like a bicycle, what's called a mama cherry, a mum's bike. I cycled along the rice fields, 30 minutes to the nearest big town. In those days, there was no smartphone. So I was using actually a map. Right, right. <laughs> And I went to a local chain izakaya called Watame, which has got picture menus, so I could actually know what I was ordering. And I tried, my my plan worked. I tried sake number two from Shizuoka. It was amazing. And then I was even brave enough to recognize that one of the countries was Niigata, which is also famous, I discovered was a famous sake area later on. But there were lots from Niigata, so I ordered something from there. And then I tried Hakkai-san, which is also a very famous brand. So Week one, you know, the discoveries were just... How fortunate. Looking back now, I mean, considering, you know, where you've ended up within that world, how fortunate you were to have been introduced to it and had such a a wonderful experience. You know, it could have been one of the less, you know, desirable ones or less tasty, drinks that would well, have been I mean, served in a for me it was really about knowledge i wanted to learn more i was so excited about it and there was no information in english the only way i could find out more was to get on a bike go somewhere and try try sake or like pretty stupid dumb me i was thinking like in european terms like oh well if you like a wine you'd go to the winery and you'd do like a wine salad tasting. So that's what I did. I'd find the addresses of the places that I liked. And I would get on a local train because I had no money. I would take like six hours by local train to get to some tin pot brewery in the middle of nowhere. Remember, I can't speak Japanese. And <laughs> I would rock up to the brewery. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to a brewery. They're factories. You know, they're not they're not tours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They don't speak English. There's no tasting room, you know. They're just like these people are like, what are you doing in the middle of the <laughs> Do you have anywhere to stay? I'm like, no. no. <laughs> 
and then that you know just my innocence and yeah. just my full heartedness yeah. meant that I made friends with people and they right. would take me under their wing and like honestly I just spent years doing that and yeah. just through meeting people and organically building knowledge mm. and it slowly my you know yeah. language skills started to build up too just through years of just that curiosity and passion it sounds like it towards and just always saying yes to an opportunity yeah. like never turning down an opportunity to try something yeah. or go somewhere yeah i discovered that i actually learned a lot and now because i'd been complaining that there wasn't any english information now i was the english information and in fact the english information was often Incorrect, because I was actually at the cold face hearing from people why my knowledge was wrong. So, you know, it was a really wonderful way to learn. The only barrier was my fear and my pocketbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And fast forwarding, I guess, I mean, you ultimately landed with Japan Craft Sake Company, right, yeah. in Tokyo. And I, I'd suspect just the way you described it, it sort of was born out of these experiences of just meeting somebody, like you said, not saying yeah. no opportunities, and it just went from there. Is that kind of yeah, a correct assumption? Was, as I said, you know, I was never planning on doing this. More than anything, I wanted to be the change that I needed in the sake industry because mm. when I did start to formally learn about sake, like doing a sake sommelier course and doing all of the certificates that you need to take for people to take you seriously I just felt people just throwing vocabularies of words at me and it was just this very data-driven technical unlife-enhancing kind of experience whereas my sake world was full of people and adventures and stories and you know like it had it was such a lovely world to be in going into the structured learn about sake world was really turned me off the sake experience and I thought my god if this is people's first experience in sake they're going to be like backing out the door really really fast so I wanted to initially because I came from a teaching background I wanted to use sort of maybe some of my interpersonal skills and my language skills to maybe create a platform where I could do some really informal presentations sort of teaching sake through my experience and breaking it down into kind of like themes of like not learning about sake in like a technical way, but learning about sake in a kind of more thematic way. And also making it an experience, a big open door, like making the entry into sake seem like a really big welcoming door so that it was easy to come into and get people on the bridge to start their own journey and to do the rest of the exploration discovery by themselves because that's half the fun. Exactly, you know? exactly. And it, it kind of strikes me as kind of like a bit of marketing coming in, whether whether or not you were thinking about it from that sort of perspective or not at that time, but it, it, maybe that sort of like played into some of your work that you're doing right now with Japan Craft Sake, you know, some of the marketing mm, and, and, well, and opening things up. More than anything, it was, as I say, I wanted to represent the change that I needed. And because I was you know, in Tokyo, out almost every night going to izakayas or places where I could enjoy sake. And I was taking bottles of sake to my favorite French restaurants or Italian restaurants or Spanish restaurants because sake just vibes with food so well. It's just, it it doesn't have as much acidity as wine, 
but it's got eight times more amino acidity. So it actually is almost like liquid MSG. Like it really just like makes the food more delicious without, you know, beating it down with 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 acidity or astringency. So for me to have a much more fun food experience, I was taking sake everywhere. So when I was out, I was realizing that at an izakaya, like this is back in 2010, so this is, you know, over 10 years ago, I looked around myself at the counter of the most famous sake izakaya in Japan. And not only was I, of course, the only foreigner that was a given, I was the only female. I was the only person under 40. And I was probably the only person that had my own natural teeth. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty old man centric. And I was like, you know, I really wanted more women and more diverse people in my sake world. And so that's why I wanted to make sure that I had this, I could engage people and express to the aspirational qualities of sake and the delicious qualities of sake and the potential of sake without defining too much what it is so that they could explore it. And along the way, I met a lot lot of people and I was eventually introduced to Takashi Murakami, the pop artist, who was, you know, mutual friends with some close friends of mine. And he's a real innovator and he's a real agitator. He plays with tradition and modernity and commercialism and artistry. He, he, he plays with all of those things. And he was like, you know, come into my cafe because I had a cafe in Nakano and I want you to do presentations because most of my fans are foreigners. But also I have a lot of Japanese people who really enjoy speaking English or international languages or meeting international people. And so it was like my target market you know um and so for a couple of years i would do like every other month i'd do presentations there and that led on to me him asking me to create a limited edition sake for his final solo exhibition in japan which is held at Roppongi hills in 2017 uh 2016 and yeah so i got in touch with my favorite brewers and created a special sake for him and i guess I'd never been in the sake industry, like in terms of the the government organizations that are set up for foreigners to funnel through. I was kind of like Pluto in the sake, you know, solar system. I mean, I was kind of like just floating around, kind of undefinable because I wasn't one of the people that was tapped by the government to be a spokesperson for sake. I was, I had my own platform. I was doing my own thing. And my boss is also, um, you know, a bit of a, a Pluto in the, in, the, in the solar system of Japanese culture and, and life. You know, he obviously, Japan's probably most famous and his, the first premier footballer who made a name for himself by being selected for the Serie A League in Italy and going on to captain the Japan team and taking the Japan team to the World Cup. So he is, you know, an icon and and Japanese an icon, public figure, no doubt. He's also a nonconformist in many ways as well. He has very much got his own. He's he's got a he's got a vision, a vision of what he wants to do, and he does it through basically solving problems that he sees through working with the best in the industry, not necessarily working through traditional channels. And he's a really innovative thinker. Like I would say, um, a critical thinker, and uh, we sort of bumped into each other naturally at a sake event, and um, 
I knew about him and I knew that he was getting involved in culture. Like Japan Craft Sake Company doesn't mean like craft beer. It means Japan crafts and sake. Oh, so it's kind of okay. like all of these all, all of right. these things woven together. Because, yeah. you know, yeah. as I was saying before, everything's interwoven. You can't have craft without sake. You can't have sake without craft. You can't have Japan without all of those Yeah, things. it makes sense now that you say it that way, but it's not how I interpreted it. But yeah, okay. All right. So, you know, we just got talking and I guess he sort of had heard about what I was doing and I'd heard about what he was doing. And I said, you know, you know, being a bit of a fan girl, I was like, oh. <laughs> um, and, and I said, well, look, you know, if there's anything I can do to help, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, by the way, he speaks certain English, which is great. <laughs> it's helpful. Um, and yeah, he said, well, I've, I'm setting up a, I've set up a, a company called Japan Grass Like a Company and would you like to be involved? And I was like, yeah. yeah. Sign me up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the rest of the day is history. Wow. So I'm now of international marketing and PR, which was my original platform. And now I've we've developed an export department. So we're exporting from Japan. And we're also, we've developed an export system, which is my, I remember I told you that SAC is very, very sensitive to heat and light. And, um, Remember that circuit that I tried in New Zealand that was amber brown? Clearly didn't have temperature controlled shipping or storage. So our export system is minus five degree temperature controlled from brewery to the final restaurant where it's sold. So that makes means that customers at the restaurant can finally enjoy sake in the optimum condition that the brewery intended, not the damaged goods that they're getting sold, you know, without you know, and going, that is really expensive. I don't know why it's so great. Yeah, unfortunately, the sack we're drinking hasn't been handled well, but most people, even the most knowledgeable, see the brewery, they know the brewery and they know the sack is still about the brewery. They've got good storage, you know, themselves, but it's the middle bit, the track to the, wet, to the port, yeah. the port warehouse on the boat all the way across to you in customs. Then the the warehouse when it gets landed, you know, then the truck to where it's going. You know, so all of these things are really important to keep sake in its optimum condition. So our export system is minus five degree temperature control. And we've now secured that with blockchain technology. So now on my phone, I'm getting pings every now and then. Every single bottle that we export is traceable. So I can find, I can trace every single bottle. I know where it is. I know all of its storage. The temperature as well, probably. I know how long it's been sitting in storage. I know how how often the restaurant that we're selling the sake to, how quick their turnover is. So how much they should be supplied each month or each delivery to keep their, you know, their stock freshest. So, and then also on the back end, it's really helpful in terms of market data because we're seeing how some markets prefer a certain flavor profile. And that data is really important for feeding back to the brewery so that they can better allocate their limited allocation that they have every year. Like this market prefers a richer taste and the sales are consistent with that data. And this market seems to prefer a drier taste and we've got the data to support that. So therefore we're going to allocate and separate our allocations this way it also can actually help them develop new product lines that might be suitable specifically for markets. But most importantly, sake is 
made starts production starts in the rice field, right? And so that happens. This rice planting starts in you know around spring each year. That rice that's harvested now, like in September, October, each year, is then brewed through the winter and then stored and released the following spring, and it should be drunk within that year. So if the brewer wants to add a new product line, they have to do it 12 months before, right? Because they've got to buy the rice seedlings to plant the crops, to grow the the base. Yeah, um, so they need to know that, that data need. is critical for them to know, right? you know how to be preparing them, what quantities, what types, all of that stuff. I can see how that all connects up. What kind of blows me away is how that wasn't or hasn't been integrated a lot sooner, you know? And like my question here right? is that, like, is that, yeah, like, is that becoming a benchmark unto itself now? Or is that kind of one of the aims of the company that you're working for right now? Well, that, that is our aim. This has evolved. When we first started exporting, we weren't using a blockchain system. That was for sure. <laughs> and it's really, we were, I, we, Nick Artisanen identified the key barriers to increasing exports because let's face it the sake market domestically is shrinking 90 over 90 percent of japan's market is domestic that market is shrinking because of the aging population and because of failures systemic failures within the sake industry as a whole to connect sake with a new generation right and so the there's this increasingly shrinking uh, consumer base domestically. And also, I mean, before, you know, World War II, I think there were something like 3,000 or something breweries. Now there are, oh no, 5,000 breweries. Now there are roughly 1,300. And not all of those are actually sake producers that make a product like we know it. They can be contract breweries that just supply a base product to a mass mega maker that mixes all up together in the tank or a brewery that has got its license but doesn't has gone bankrupt and doesn't make any sake anymore you know so and then with each of those breweries they make I would say you know like on average six sake per brewery so six sake per, per brewery sometimes a lot more times a thousand now look at how much variety you've got on the market and the market's shrinking there's no market for that diversity the diversity is overseas it's elsewhere 100 percent. Right? yeah the, it, it's, it sounds almost crazy to think of that like the, that that amount of history the richness the culture of all of that and the future is in the hands of overseas buyers or an overseas mm-hmm. market essentially right the way things are going and i mean a lot of that has also been obviously because you know washako or japanese food is you know, just year on year, just increases in popularity. I mean, the government likes to say it's because of the, you know, the UNESCO listing of Washoku, but, you know, it's not that. People have clicked on to Japanese food. It's clean, it's healthy, it's aspirational, it's yummy. And it doesn't, I don't think people care about the UNESCO <laughs> listing. <quite> frankly, <laughs> no. Don't tell the government that I said that. And, you know, so of course they want to drink sake. but that's also one of the problems is that there is this over-identification with sake and washoku. And so people will, you know, assume that you only drink sake with 
Japanese food. And I'm so sick of going to Japanese food, but it's like ye old Japanese experience with all of the staff were wearing kimonos and tottering around and serving it to me in a little um, tiny little, little choco, which I can't get any aroma or flavor out of. And I'm like, man, give it to me in a wine glass and um, give me some cheese because, you know, sake is a ferment. Sake loves fermented food. Give me cheese, give me ham, give me, you know, anything fermented and I'm going to have like a party. And also like if the market is going to expand, there is a finite number of Japanese restaurants and it's a trend still. Right. So if the trend changes and Japanese food goes out of fashion, sake is gone. Sake has lost its market, right? So we've got another situation of a shrinking market. So what we have to do is we have to push sake beyond its traditional boundaries and into Nordic cuisine restaurants, into French restaurants, into, you know, help educating the public that sake is a life-enhancing beverage that like wine or your favorite beverage of choice can be incorporated into your lifestyle. It's basically reimagining this product, right? You know, it's it's marketing. It's like you said, educating is the word as well. And I, I'm picking up on this, this feeling here that that's a big part of what you do, aside from some of these logistical issues or not, not issues, but logistical options that brewers have or your company has to help facilitate the product being transported a lot of your job is coming down to this is just re-educating or or marketing it in such a way that does create new opportunities is that yeah so we want to avoid educating people and that goes back to my experience of learning about sake you know formally because did you, Chris? I mean, I know that you like a you like a beer. Yeah. Like a yeah of did course. you ever? Did you ever sit down and have an educational experience? No, to make no, you no. Enjoy what I mean work? by educating, like I mean, like what you were just speaking of, like re-educating, exactly, exactly. You know, in terms of like the possibilities, you know, like what you could be pairing this with. It doesn't have to be, you know, yeah. solely with Japanese and food here. The better, the best way to do it is instead of telling people, showing people, right? And so that's like actually my first job when I joined Japan Karasaki Company was it was February and my boss was like, we've got, we're doing an event at Nopongi Hills in the arena area. They've given us like a week to do a sake festival. And so the only sake, you know, events that are, were ever in Japan were in hotel banqueting rooms um, with, you know, the standard trellis table. Again, that standard little tiny choco glass that doesn't do anything for any sake ever. And it was usually old people <laughs> and a, and if you're lucky you would maybe get some like some some senbei or some snacks or something it was it was not a fun time and so my boss put on a sake culture like japan craft sake culture event it was a sake culture event not necessarily a sake event and the idea was 100 breweries 10 teams each day, like maybe a soccer, the soccer background was coming. Yeah, there you go, 10 yeah. teams. <laughs> and um, so it was a week with extra time, it was actually 10 days, so a week with extra time. And uh, 10 breweries would serve three sake. And the idea was because if you ever went to a sake event, you'd go into this big banqueting room, there'd be about 50 brewers, all, all with all of their sake, and by the time you tried a few, you were sort of getting a bit of a buzz on. You couldn't remember anything that you liked anymore. And you it was it was just in the end, just you're just drinking. 
right? But we wanted people to have a small curated selection so people could find a sake that they liked and remember the name so they could go out and buy it again. But more importantly, we said the event space was designed by, actually in the, for the first one, it was the a woodwork collective that was in second. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, the the wood area up in Sendai that was destroyed in the triple disaster, the um, earthquake, tsunami, and the radioactive disaster. Uh, the name will come to me in my, but it's a famous wood area. And so they did all of the, like made all the, the picnic tables and the chairs and the installation. And so there's kind of a craft element there. And all of the, the ochoko were handmade guinomi and ochoko, which were made using a, a sort of a, a pottery workshop in, in um, Gifu Prefecture. So it was the, another craft element. And then the food trucks were like Michelin-starred food trucks or introduction-only food trucks that were serving like, you know, um, like one of them was in Japan, there's this famous thing called uh, tomago kake gohan, which is an egg like over rice. But this was truffle kake gohan. So it was <laughs> um, course, basically yeah. just lots of black truffle over wagyu on a rice bowl. Like, so it was just like lux, lux, lux. And, and, but yummy and delicious. And it wasn't traditional Japanese. Like, there's some French food elements in there. And it was for some people's their first experience of having sake with the non traditional food. There you go. Food. Yeah. Yeah. Pairing it up in, in, in different non traditional ways yeah and of course there were djs we had all the best djs come and do sets every night so there's music 24 hours a day so it started from seven and went till nine at night all night music it was just like it was the most fun time and people said that people were like it can't be done what a a ridiculous idea and it was hard work and we made a lot of mistakes but we knew that we were onto something. And so, you know, the next year we revved it up, we made it bigger, better, more beautiful. And every year it's just bigger and bigger. It, and bigger. Correct and me if I'm wrong, world. it's it's the biggest sake event now in the entire country, right? Well, we like to say it's the the world's largest sake culture event. It's not a sake event like a tasting event where you can just go and drink sake. In terms of a sake multi-experience a multi-sensory experience it is the largest in in the world and i like to think it's the best yeah that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing like i'm just struck by you know a lot of things in this conversation thus far like one is just how quickly we're moving through it all but another thing too is just like this journey that you've been on is like you said i think you're, you're speaking to this point of just being open to opportunities and being one really quite passionate about it. And I think that comes across in this conversation loud and clear and just the amount of opportunities that just sort of opened up from that and of course, yeah. you know, the, the, the deeper you get into it, you know, like the, the more that you're offering back into that world. And uh, yeah, it sounds like it's been quite well. Sake has been very kind to me, but sake for me is more than just a drink because I come from a like a, a language background. You know, you and I breaking the fourth wall. You know, have a history of working together and you know our past lives as, as teachers, and. Yeah, by pursuing my curiosity and finding something that I was really passionate about and that sort of being the driving force, not because I have to do this or I have to do that. It was more just just the curiosity and desire to learn allowed me to like go into directions I would never, ever have chosen consciously myself. And then 
along the way through my journey, I've come across a lot of problems that need to have, you know, you don't come up against a problem and go, oh, well, we can't do that. And it's like, oh, here's a problem. How do we get over that? How do problem, I get around right? this? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. and how do we, how do we just make the problem go away? So learn the problem and create solutions around that so that other people don't have to come up against the same experience, not just us. Make the road smooth for everyone so that we're all moving down a highway of expansion with as least resistance as possible and with some clear guidelines that, you know, through trial and error, people have gone beforehand can put in place to make sure that we're all traveling safe. And I think, think, sorry to interrupt there. It's a really interesting point though, I think is that, you know, what, you're doing in essence is like you're, you're representing the industry. You're trying to push the whole industry forward outside of like what you're, you know, working for, for this one particular company, the future of that company is tied obviously to that industry. And, and, and some of those issues that we already spoke about, some of the challenges, inherent challenges within Japan for sake moving forward and some of the opportunities that exist overseas, but you're, you're right. I mean, some of those issues, some of those obstacles, they need solutions. You need to find ways around them or to, to as you say, put them down a little bit so you can get yeah, over them. Yeah, and, and you've lived in Japan for a long time, so you'll be familiar with the word shogunai, which is like it can't be helped. And it's, I when I I hate that expression because it can be helped. If you find something that's an obstacle, it's your responsibility to look at it, understand it, and try and create solutions to move through it. Otherwise, you're never going to progress. You're never going to move forward. And, you know, so... I've also made a lot of mistakes. You know, I've learned the hard way not to do something again. And my boss is also pretty, you know, open-minded in that way. He's like, well, okay, this is a lesson. What have you learned? How do we avoid it? What are the strategies and countermeasures we need to put in place? Because if you're making this mistake, what other people are going to make this mistake too, right? And so, you know, now I've, I've learned so many more skills from so many industries and and I'm, I don't have a marketing background I don't have you know an IT background but it's like when I first started Osaka it's just you've just got to ask questions you've just got to go on and yeah talk to and people. also too I think it's this point of like the motivation's genuine it's authentic like you found something that you can really sink yourself into you deeply care about the future of sake you know clearly um, obviously, it's your profession as well now, but like there's there's meaning attached to your work. And I think that can help fuel you through some of these learning experiences, whether yeah. you're getting into like import export stuff or the marketing side or different things, you know, like I think that's a key point here that I'm picking up on as well from a career perspective that probably a lot of listeners can. Really yeah. And from. I guess like, the, you know, everyone's got a COVID story, but I guess, you know, I think COVID was actually a really interesting time for many ways because you know, the timing of COVID was basically when Japan sort of started to sort of shut down. We didn't lock down, but we shut down in around March, which is the the time when the first batches are ready to be released into the market of sake, ready to be released into the market, and they're usually unpasteurized. So it's like the first taste of the newly brewed sake. It's called shibori tate, or it's called the hatsu shibori, or Haruzake, all of the spring fresh unpasteurized sake that are like young, bright, youthful, a little bit brash, you know, a little bit like a toddler, like really nice and small doses. But after a while, I just wish they'd calm down a little bit. But, you know, there is a seasonal style of sake that is really celebrated in Japan. 
And that's the time when they get shipped out. But their numbers are unpasteurized. So these are the most unstable circuit that are designed to be shipped, consumed, gone within spring, right? The world's closing down. No one's, no one is, no one's, no one can go out, right? And the brewers, so when you start brewing, you can't stop. You've got your, you've bought all of your rice and you've got a schedule and you, you start brewing, you start making your first like yeast starter and you start making, building your first cement. You are in a cycle of building and finishing, building and finishing sake in tanks until all the rice is gone right? And to all through that time, you're shipping, 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 getting the stock out because you need space to store all of For the, the next yeah, batch. Right? right. So the, all of the orders were cancelled. They've got bottles building up in their warehouses and they're still producing more and more sake. So some brewers were just, were just pouring the sake down the drain, literally, because they didn't have enough Storage space. facilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So... One of the things that we did was we turned our app, we've got an app, which is called Sakenomi. You might be familiar, or some of your listeners might be familiar with an app called Vivino, which is an app that like you take a photo of a bottle of wine that you're drinking and you upload it and it tells you the information about the wine and how to buy it and you can do rankings and things. Well, Nagata-san launched this app eight years ago. It's the same technology. It's the same base, basically, but it does it for sake. And what we had to do was, well, we realized, okay, we've got a problem. Brewers are traditional industries. They off, they've got an alcohol license to make sake and sometimes even an export license, very rarely though. They often don't have a retail license. They can't actually, they've got to sell their sake to a wholesaler. Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Right? And with all of the wholesalers closed because all the restaurants are closed, the breweries have got no B2C avenue. So... During COVID, there was a quick shift and it was like, okay, change the app, add an online site. So now people can find the sake that they're drinking at home and order it or just through like, you know, everyone was doing online webinars and things, you know, doing an online webinar and people could buy it through the app, blah, blah, blah. So again, there was a seeing a problem and finding a solution and some brewers are now realizing from that experience, yikes, why don't we have a better C retail license you know this is this is something that we need to do for the future to protect ourselves and then also during covid obviously japan was pretty much shut down for quite a while and um, no one was allowed to drink, drink sake but brewers were and uh, were getting a lot especially famous ones were getting a lot of orders like all the izakayas in, in tokyo and osaka are closed how can we be getting so many orders because those izakaya which were closed were becoming recent sellers and re-exporting any sake that was shipped to them <laughs> and it was all going overseas which I don't recommend by beware by the way that's not our export system but it was happening so you could see that because Japan, Japan was closed down there was this need for people to you know get sake to the markets that were demanding more sake and during COVID the popularity of Japanese restaurants went through the roof because no one could come to Japan. Right, right. There's and also there demand. was this real this real shift towards clean things, like clean food, clean beauty, clean this, clean that. Sake, that, that sake and washoku like fits into that beautifully. So the demand overseas for sake was huge. But again, brewers didn't have export licenses or they didn't, they were so small that they didn't have the know-how to. Just the global skills perhaps even to take advantage. Yeah. yeah. 
So, well, a lot of people were like, I don't know, were doing, like, learning how to do sourdough bread and, you know, picking up hobbies. I was never busier. <laughs> there you go, though. I was, I was, it was 24-7 yeah, during COVID yeah. because it was just, finally, there was this huge global crisis that made a lot of brewers that were sitting on the fence jump over the fence and into export land. But they didn't have any of the know-how to do it. Yeah. So yeah. Mark, I've got time for one more question here. And it kind of leads yeah. into this this idea of the future and the industry moving forward from those experiences yeah. which you were just describing. Like, are you optimistic for the future of sake? Like going forward, like from those maybe new partnerships, new avenues for some of these brewers to explore through these relationships? What do you see? What's the crystal ball, you know, in, in, in uh, your estimation? It's incredible just looking back like when i talk about 2010 mm. and it was me and like basically the oaps old age pensioners of you know setagayaku um hanging out having a drink and now like the young people are into sake you go to an isekai it's hard to get a reservation sometimes all these young people are in my seat and you've got diverse groups of people you've got Young people, old people, foreigners, you've got just, and people are drinking. You can find sake, like famously, like Noma, which is like one of the world's most famous restaurants. When they did a pop-up in, in Japan in 2015, I want to say, they had sake on the menu. And a lot of really regional small breweries, not big famous names, but more small handcrafted sake brewers that were focused on you know, really terroir-driven, organically grown rice to create a more kind of nuanced uh, expression in the resulting sake. So there's, you know, now it, it's common in Europe to go to a restaurant and part, you know, three-star Michelin restaurant, part of the tasting menu appearing, there'll be a sake because people have, you know, have been turned on to sake, they've been turned on to the potential of it. And, you know, there is no better time to be drinking sake than right now because, you know, when I was coming up through you know, the sake world, the guys that were hanging out with me, my buddies, who were, you know, also 30-something at the time, they were like me. They were internationally minded. They were curious. But unlike me, they came from brewing families. And they returned back to their breweries with sort of experience of like traveling and going overseas and going to university, maybe going to art school, maybe doing, you know, an MBA. And they brought that skill that they, they learned from actually moving away from sake and they brought it back into the brewery and maybe through experience of like maybe they their hobby is enjoying wine. They like, you know, I really like that kind of like that terroir driven sake. How can we represent our community better? I know we need to get number one, more young people involved in sake from the rice field to the final bottle. We need to get more women in here. We need to, you know, because women are community builders. Women are the great communicators in Japanese culture that really help to build and connect communities. So there are far more women in there, but we're still early doors because I, you know, as I I sort of said in the movie I was involved in, in a few years ago called Kampai to Sake Sisters, one of my things was I didn't actually want to be in the movie because I didn't want to be called a sake sister. I didn't want to be called a woman in sake. I wanted to be a business person in sake. There are too many labels in traditional industries like the sake industry and actually need to sort of smash stereotypes and create new archetypes. And what we need in the sake industry looking around is we need way more diversity. But I, I'm not just talking about people. I'm talking about skill sets. We need people that 
have got marketing backgrounds. We need people who've got IT backgrounds. We need people who've got logistics backgrounds, people in refrigeration experts. You know, we need more people to come in and help to innovate and further push the industry forward. So it's it's exciting, but there's still so I much. I would say, to like the, the word opportunity comes to mind. It sounds like, and just listening to you right now, it seems, seems like things are developing. Seems like there 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 is mm. a future there, and there's a lot more opportunity. That, uh, like you said, just need a few more people in there to, to start pushing it out and then smoothing things yeah. down a little bit more. If we're going to take it, we're going to push past the the glass ceiling that Sake has inevitably had created for it because obstacles were allowed to masticize for too long. We need to like push through that that invisible ceiling and take Saka into, as I say, something which is, which is part of everyday life, something that people from all walks of life, any culture, any background, any socioeconomic level can find a sake that and enjoy it, you know, just like they would any of their favorite beverages, but also to drink responsibly. <laughs> of course, of course. Because it is an alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to say here, Rebecca, I mean, this has been such an engaging conversation and I've really enjoyed it. Like, I can't believe we've already gone through an hour of this conversation. And uh, I think listeners are really going to like it. It's been an hour? Yeah, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's been great. Like, I think from a career perspective, like people are really going to latch on to this, for, you know, whether or not they're into sake per se. But I think it's, 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 Again, I've used this word several times. It's this passion. I think you can see that, like, just coursing through different points of your journey, you know, and, and what it's led to. And I think those types of lessons are transferable in so many different respects. So, you know, again, I can't thank you enough for all that you've shared today. And uh, yeah. oh, thanks for letting me talk my head off. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great. It's been a really, really engaging talk, as I said. So, oh, well, thanks, Chris. I owe you a bottle of sake. <laughs> yeah, all right. You can send that anytime. All righty. Well, um, hopefully, you know, your listeners find something valuable in here. And I'm not sure if you have much interaction um, on your posts, but if anyone's got a question, wherever they find this content, if they like want to drop off a question or something, uh, let me know. I'll have it. Yeah. I'll have all the information in the, the episode notes so they'll be able to find you Yay. on social channels. So, cool. yeah. Thanks again. You're welcome. Well, look, thanks, Chris. It was really fun. Now, for those interested in learning more about Rebecca and her work, you can check her out on a few different platforms. One is Instagram, two, LinkedIn. You can also go to Craft Sake Week, as well as Japan Craft Sake Company. And for reference, all this information, including links, will be in the show notes. Also, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. You can also show further support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcasts. And lastly, as I mentioned off the top, head on over to YouTube and check out video highlights of the conversation over there. And if you do make it your way over to that platform, I would really, really appreciate a like or subscribe. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.